Well, um, you may be forgiven if tonight you don't look at me and immediately think, basketball player. (laughs) You'd be excused, I get it. Uh, I don't quite have the size or the stature. Uh, My vertical leap, I think it probably scores smack dab in the middle of the white guy scale. And I honestly, I haven't played with consistency in um, quite a few years. But man, basketball was my sport growing up. I'll have you know that I was a dead ringer from the three-point line. And I've got some decent ball-handling skills as well. Um, One thing I really loved about basketball is the aspect of finesse and footwork that comes with the game. Maybe similar to your favorite game here. From the lankiest guy on the court to the brawniest, positioning and foot placement have to be honored. So to have captured a position on the court either offensively or defensively, it's to be respected, right? You can't just barrel through a planted guard. Um, There's hope for the little guy if the refs are calling the game right. And then there's the footwork, okay? So when you first start playing the game, you can't quite get your mind around that pesky traveling call, right? So I have to get 94 feet down the length of the court without taking more than two steps without dribbling this 29-and-a-half-inch inflated rubber ball onto the floor, back up into the air, with five defenders trying to snatch it from me. It's a terrible rule at first, before you practice your dribbling skills enough and you learn the glorious art of the pivot foot. So what's a pivot foot, you ask? The technical term in basketball. Well, in essence, it, takes, it allows you to take full advantage of your two free steps without bouncing the basketball by stopping and planting the pivot foot. Once you plant it, you can turn it into a fulcrum. You can swing your body away from the defender. You can move into a more desirable direction. The pros actually have completely mastered this, the pivot foot. And their world-class athletes do nothing like me, but that's not the point. So the pivot foot allows you to move in the direction of travel, one full step, no dribble, around the defender. Oh, finesse and footwork. It's all about the pivot foot. Tonight, we're going to talk about how to pivot. Uh, we're going to look at Psalm 42. We'll read it again as a whole song, written most likely by David at an incredibly low point in his life. Uh, We're going to listen to the flow of writing, and we're going to see how this man of God pivots from himself and to God. So just starting at the trailhead from Psalm 42, you can walk a few different paths. Um, It teaches and and it has taught for generations so much about the reality of depression, the presence of real enemies, faith conflicting with our senses, And yeah, they're all absolutely true paths. And they're right here, clearly in black and white. And I definitely, tonight, don't want to come off sounding like some sort of amateur physician writing in this hollow prescription for depression. No way. That struggle is real. Some here are currently battling it. But what we're going to do tonight is just drink deeply and thoroughly of this psalm together. We're going to learn what we can from the experiences therein. We're going to ask the question of when we are low, how do we pivot away from ourselves and towards God? We're not going to offer cheap, throwaway tips and tricks, but we're going to listen to a most gracious and suffering servant's own experience 
which is sealed in God-breathed scripture for us. So the question is massive. The text is profound. How do we pivot away from ourselves and towards God? So let's jump in. We'll read it one more time. And this time, listen for the pivot point. To the choir master, Maskell, the sons of Korah, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. So, tonight, we're going to be diving in with a top ten list. You're going to get it, and we'll hear where the pivot is and the top ten reasons from Scripture of how we pivot away from ourselves and toward God. Number one, just on the surface and at the beginning, we listen, we read, and we sing from the saints gone before. So where did this psalm come from, and what actually is it? Well, it was addressed to the choir master and these sons of Korah, who were a specific Israelite family who had become leaders in the choral and orchestral music during the time of David as king. So it was most likely used in public worship around 1,000 B.C., a couple thousand, 3,000 years ago. And basically most everyone agrees that the author is David. Even though he's not cited, it sounds so much like Psalm 63. But the jury is kind of out as to the specific occasion during which he wrote it. Was it either at the time of his persecution at the hands of Saul, or maybe during Absalom's armed rebellion, 2 Samuel 17. But in both cases, David suffered greatly, and he was driven far away from the sanctuary in Jerusalem. So it's always edifying to listen to the experience of a gracious and much afflicted saint gone before, especially one such as David. But stories exist aplenty in our Bible and in our lives. This is actually a song. And it's not just to be read, it's to be sung. God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. So even within the lyrics themselves, look at verse 8, it reminds us that when others are sleeping, we should be praising God. So hey, maybe it's time we recount another example from Scripture. How about in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi? Talk about lowliness and despair literally the first European city after the first convert and the first miracle there, boom, they're attacked, beaten with rods and thrown in prison. 
Listen to 1625. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. What shook the foundations, threw open the doors, and brought a revival? It was their singing. So when our circumstances feel lower than low, how do we just even begin to make that pivot towards God away from ourselves? Well, we listen, we read, and we sing from the saints who've gone before us. All right, let's look back at verses 1 and 2 again. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So David desired to appear directly before God. How long, how long have you ever gone without water? Maybe a few hours? Maybe a day? Um, you're probably more aware, more traumatized by the uh, longest duration that you've gone without coffee or tea, because those are first world problems. But... Here we have the image of a parched stag hunted, pursued across the Middle Eastern wilderness, simply dying for a rest and a drink of water. So we're not, we're not referencing a sweet luxury. What we're talking about is an absolute necessity, and it's the difference between life and death to the stag. That's what communion with God is like for David. He's been banished far from God's house. His dwelling in radiance on earth in the Ark of the Covenant and the Tent of Meeting in Jerusalem, and he's far off to the north in the land of Jordan. But oh, how David longed to appear before God, to pay his respects, to receive his commands. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. Song lyric goes. In our desperation, when we only see ourselves and our circumstances, seek after an appointment with the king. Be reminded that in Christ... You have free access to God, a most excellent listener and counselor. Change your thinking about talking directly, appearing before a holy God. We're not talking about an amenity or potentiality, but hear the words of necessity from David. And number two, desire to appear directly before God. Number three, go to God with your precise circumstances. Just listen again to some of the refrains. My tears have been my food day and night. My soul is cast down within me. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Go to God with your precise circumstances. He doesn't run out of patience and compassion for his children, especially when they're coming to him in prayer with their troubles. So my son's only five. But what do you think is the most common answer or likely response to my question? How was your day at school? What did you do at school? Nothing. Standard, right? It's the permanent standard. Nothing. Fine. He's only five. How has he already figured that out? We have to speak to, we have to cajole, we have to draw it out of our children to open up their lives, open up their hearts. What was going on with David? Well, it was truly sorrowful, both in his absence from the city of God and his people and in his enemies' reproaches. But don't let the fact that his oppression seemed dire affect the way that you view your normal Tuesday. 
our battles aren't against flesh and blood. Let's, we don't even know the half of it most of the time. And as those with liberty and access to God, let's realize that he knows what's best for us and that that's an open conversation with the one who made all things and holds us in his hands. Just talk to him. Just go to him in plain English or American. Go to God with your precise circumstances, number three. How do we pivot away from ourselves and towards God? Four, we acknowledge that those words which have wounded us deeply. So look at, David brings up a couple really precise circumstances right there in verses 3 and 10. In verse 3, they say to me all day long, where is your God? And in 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Words, just words. But oh, they cut much deeper than we usually admit. So as we're studying this pivot from self to God, we've got to acknowledge the power of words. Yeah, to to build up, but to tear down. Um, And also the power that they have to just bounce around our heads on repeat sometimes. Scornful and cutting words, bottled up and internalized, is like taking a hot coal from a fire and just bringing it to your bedroom for some extra warmth. Not in one of those like pans where it's all safe and stuff, but just bring the hot coal straight out of the fire and into your bedroom. You can't bring it in. It's just going to burn the whole room down. You've got to leave it where it belongs, in the pit. Where is your God? They railed against him. Deadly words, lies, poison, that's where those are. And as soon as they're internalized, it becomes a sword in his bones. The worst thing about the cruel taunts lobbed his way was really their intended effect. The message from the scoffers and the cowers had no other intended effect than to shake David's hope and confidence in God and to reflect with scorn on the Lord's faithfulness. These aren't empty words. They're hand grenades lobbed in with the pins pulled. So what do we learn from David? Throw it back. Don't jump on it. Call them out. Enlist the help of your friends. Tell somebody what you've been thinking about. Tell them those words that you've heard, you've been told, and you can't seem to shake. Tell God what has been said. He knows. So go to him and acknowledge those words that have wounded you deeply. How do we pivot? We know the multitudes which are in procession with us. It's not, all, it's not all negative with David, even at the beginning. He remembers the positives. He still remembers who he is right now. Here he is in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Here we are among the throng and the multitude who profess Jesus as Lord and want to worship him and adore him all the more. So as we read this account, we realize that we are presently located in the exact circumstances in which David himself so longed after and remembered fondly. These are the good old days we reflected on last Sunday. 
I, I don't need to say much more on this topic except to highlight two things. One, the more the better in the service of God. It's more like heaven. It's so, so encouraging to be with your brothers and sisters. If you doubt it, then just talk to those who have experienced long absences from fellowship because we weren't made for isolation. The more the better. And two, the remembrance of the multitudes matters for your pivot to God. So I've used this phrase a couple times publicly uh, in church and from right here. And I feel like mentioning it again, it's that the church isn't a retirement home. It's more like a wartime field hospital. We're in a battle. We're in a fight for our lives. To believe, to love, to follow Jesus. And we're in it together. So you've arrived tonight at a field hospital on a side and in an army. You've got a uniform and a leader and a mission. And as we get that, and we start to know the multitudes who are in procession with us, then it, it can't help but bring our gaze upwards and outwards. We realize that those on our right and those on our left are just like us, needing grace, needing encouragement, needing protection. And naturally, we start to shift our focus to our leader, who's the greatest warrior of all. Okay, we've made it to the crux of the issue. We've made it to the point in which numbers one and five were leading us up to, which is kind of the final point, I'll say, of this inward reflection. It's culmination in the psalm. It's summation. And we're going to firmly plant the pivot foot right here, and that's to commune with your own heart and then turn it to hope in God. Look at verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are, you within, why are you in turmoil within me? So my brother-in-law, uh, Jonathan, he's a, he's a vascular surgeon in Houston, Texas. Uh, he's married to my sister, who is the world's most active stay-at-home mother of four and smartest fossum, now former, that I know. And Jonathan uh, and I had the opportunity uh, to rally up our four brothers-in-laws, that's a long story, but last summer to make a trip to uh, rural Tanzania for some evangelism and medical clinic work. And Jonathan, as the MD on the trip, uh, his days involved seeing literally hundreds of uh, Central Africans reading their charts, speaking with them about their troubles, their concerns, uh, diagnosing, prescribing over-the-counter medications, vitamins, um, maybe recommending specific lifestyle changes or encouraging them to seek further assistance uh, in a bigger city. But Jonathan's a surgeon. He's not a tropical disease or a malnutrition expert. He deals in aortic aneurysms, uh, arterial diseases, leg ulcerations, carotid artery surgeries. I had to look all those up. He's a surgeon, right? He's trained to wash up, to glove up, to reach the table with the team, to operate under general anesthesia. But he's a doctor first, which means, especially on this trip, he's an investigator first. He applies strict scrutiny to the patient in front of him. 
He doesn't just observe effects, but seek out causes as a doctor and investigator first. So that elevated blood pressure readout, it has a specific cause. So what does he do? He communicates. He communes first with the patient in order to figure it out, to make a recommendation. Charles Spurgeon said, to search out the cause of our sorrow is often the best surgery for grief. To search out the cause of our sorrow is often the best surgery for grief. So it's like there's two men present here in the psalm as David literally talks to himself. He's reflected on his absence from God's house, his dire and troublesome circumstances, the words that have cut and wounded him, and the multitudes that he's missing in fellowship. And his his sorrow was certainly on a good account. But hear how that isn't the end of the story. See how Psalm 42 doesn't end with verse 4. Because faith has a say. And David's faith says, this doesn't have to be permanent. This isn't how the story must end. So having communed with his own heart and not as yet found relief, David realizes the cure and preaches it to himself, effectively planting that pivot foot on solid ground. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The cure? Hope in God. Have a believing confidence in God. Two things then are sure to happen. He shall again praise, so God will receive glory from David yet. This is but a season, and God remains his salvation. David will again find comfort in God. Hope in God, he says. Not an empty hope, not a hope in a feeling or a principle, but hope in the living God. This is the foot plant. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He's investigated the patient and plumbed the depths of his heart and mind, and this is the pivot, hope in God. He knows the answer isn't in the sense of his miseries, but it's in the God of his mercy. So now, let's hear as David's attention shifts from himself to God. He knows the cure, so he begins to study and pursue it. And he does so with four remembrances, which adds up to ten. First, he remembers that his location doesn't dictate his closeness to God. So even while being driven again to the borders of the land of Canaan, to Jordan, the mountainous region north of Jerusalem, David took his religion with him. He remembered that physical separation doesn't equal spiritual isolation. In fact, not even material privation or the parting from Christian company can rob us of our communion with God. The first remembrance of David as he hopes and pivots to God, is that we can be robbed of our Bibles, our ministers, our assemblies, our homes, even our lives, but we can't be robbed of God. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. We would be wise to store that truth away securely. He remembers who commands the winds and the waves, ordains his circumstances, and wouldn't forsake him. 
Look at seven and eight. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. The worst thing to do at this point in the pivot is to disarm God. Because it's honestly not even worth placing your hope in one who's not actually in control. It's not worth placing your hope in the one who's not actually in control. So if these breakers and these waves were an unstoppable and unchecked force from an out-of-control creation, then hope in God means nothing. No. The message that we read right here from David is a recognition of God's complete control. These troubles, this deluge of grief, this feeling of being a ship at sea in a great storm, tossed by the roaring waves, it all had a source, an author, it was God. So now would be a good time to recall the words of Jonah from the belly of a big fish. Jonah 2.3 said, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Whatever passes over us, whatever waves of affliction go over us at any time, we have to call them God's waves. Or our hope would be misplaced and shallow. He's in command. He knows the plan. And he's not going to forsake those who are his. So, David remembered that what God has promised will happen. At night, we suffer and toil and we're tossed about. But by day, we see that God's loving kindness is with us and he's been there all the time. He gives it freely. He commands it nonetheless. We can't pretend to merit it. And it's 100% absolutely going to happen. He commands his steadfast love. At night, his song is with me. He promises, so it happens. Remember, things will not always be bad. The Lord's affliction and mercy and kindness and love remain with the saints even while the waters roar. So, remember that what God has promised will happen. We conclude tonight with how New Testament Christians have been so blessed with concluding with the last remembrance. Remember over whom all of God's waves actually passed. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me, David said. Yeah, trials and despairs and certainly deep experiences that those who've known very little about grace know very little about. But we remember that even David exaggerates in his feelings and in this expression. We know the one over whom all of God's breakers and waves have truly passed over. And that was on his son, Jesus Christ. When shall I come and appear before God? When shall I see the face of God, David laments? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, said Jesus. So, friends, as we finish this tonight, our hearing this greatly afflicted saint pivot from himself toward God and renew his hope 
Let's remember our Savior's presence and purpose and remember the one over whom all of God's waves passed. I know the struggle is real. All of us sitting here right now know the struggle is real. So I hope that tonight we've been blessed a bit by the reading and magnifying of God's words here in the Psalms. David was low, and we're often low. David rehearsed and studied and plumbed his sorrows until he reached the end of himself. So we listen to him, and we can equally desire a hearing before God himself. To bring him our pains, to bring him our wounds, to pour out our lives. Then we listen to David fix his anchor securely on God's providence and goodness. We too can hope in God and remember his nearness and his promises. Then we can point ourselves and our brothers and sisters back to Christ, to his presence and purpose and to his victory. All of God's waves passed over him on behalf of us, and by his wounds we're healed. So pray with me. Father, thanks for this evening. And thank you for the ministry of David to the next 3,000 years of Christians who would follow him. Thank you that the Bible doesn't just contain chapters and verses of good times, but that it bottles up the hard times and the bad times, and it gives us a way forward. Father, pray that you would help us to know how to reach the end of ourselves, how to truly commune with our own griefs and sorrows. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us hope in you. I pray that you would teach us how to pivot from ourselves into God, that we wouldn't walk out of here thinking that this was a checklist or a to-do list or some cheap prescription, but instead that we would walk out of here knowing we've heard from a much-afflicted saint and heard the path back to you, and that's in your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, thank you for who you are and what you've given to us in Jesus' name. Amen.